This is Jared Fishman, and you're listening to the 20-Sided Gamified Podcast. The past 20 years, I've blended games and education together in the classroom. I'm a history teacher, a game-based learning specialist, and I serve on the board of HMGS NextGen Inc. and the North American Simulations and Games Association. I'm looking to broaden my own knowledge of game-based learning by talking to the people that do it best. Pull up a chair, get your dice ready, and enjoy the ride. Friends, as we all know, life in the modern world can be pretty tough sometimes. Whether it's that overwhelmed feeling caused by the 24-hour news cycle or that exhausted keeping up with the Joneses marathon that many people feel like they're running on a daily basis, or simply trying to get by day in and day out. The good news is that there are now platforms designed to provide us with the support we need. Our sponsor, BetterHelp, is a wonderful resource that's purposely designed to be accessible and personalized to your exact specifications. With the click of a button, you can sign up and be matched with a professional of the highest standards, a specialist that can be an unbiased support system throughout your week and beyond. And BetterHelp goes out of its way to ensure that your needs are met. If the professional you're matched up with isn't working out, BetterHelp will work tirelessly to match you up with someone who will. Here at 20-Sided Gamified, we fully and readily support our listeners' goals of living healthy, fulfilling lives filled with laughter, fun, gaming, and stories to pass on from generation to generation. We are proud to have a partnership with BetterHelp, and we hope you'll look into this wonderful opportunity and resource at a time where we all may need a little boost. Signing up for BetterHelp has never been easier. Go to betterhelp.com slash 20sidedgamified to learn more and sign up at a 10% discount for your first month. You can also gain access to BetterHelp through the link provided in our show notes. Thank you so much. Hey there, friends. Jared here from the 20 Sided Gamified podcast. So uh, with all sincerity, I love the dudes from Firelock Games. Um, the episode that you're about to listen to is with those dudes. Had so much fun talking to them. We decided to do something nice for the gaming community out there. So here's the deal. For seven days, starting right now, so for the next seven days, if you order some figures, whether it's stuff from Blood and Plunder or Oak and Iron, Blood and Valor, Blood and Steel, I mean, I could go on and on and on regarding their games. If you use the coupon code NEXTGEN10, you will get a discount on the figures that you purchase. It's just our way of saying thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Thank you for taking an interest in Firelock Games. And by the way, if you're curious about where to find their minis, the, the, the place where you're going to be able to use this coupon code is at www.firelockgames.com. So one more time, www.firelockgames.com. Use the coupon code NEXTGEN10. And if you're wondering where that name comes from, it's HMGS Next Gen Inc., the uh, group that I'm one of the directors and founders of. So again, everybody, for this holiday season, whatever you may believe, just a huge thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy this podcast, and I hope you enjoy the sale that you're going to basically get through Firelock Games just simply by listening to this podcast. Have an absolutely wonderful day and enjoy the episode. All right, everybody. Hello, this is Jared here from the 20-Sided Gamified podcast. Uh, funny story. So our guest today, who well, I'm very excited to be talking to, this is uh, a conversation that, I mean, I, my memory serves me right. I think we had connected over the summer. So it's, it's been a little bit of phone tag, a little bit of email tag, a little Instagram tag um, in terms of getting uh, uh, my newfound buddy here from across the pond uh, here to have a talk. But I feel like I do need to preface this. If Eric Farrington, if you're listening out there. So here's the deal. My my favorite guests tend to be people that get recommended to me. Now, you might remember Eric Farrington, who um, did Men of Bronze and um, Wars of the Republic. Uh, he worked with Osprey Publishing. You may also remember that if you, if you listen to that podcast, that was the infamous podcast where somehow, um, through the technology gods, we almost lost that one, right? And sure enough, 
and Eric Farrington, I blame you for this. You clearly put the hex on this podcast. Um, as Roby and I were trying to get going, he had some issues on his end. My computer just decided I'm just going to turn off um, literally as I was getting ready to start doing this. But the good news is to be a little kinder to my friend Eric Farrington. Everything is good now, and we're recording, and the audio levels sound great. Um, my friend and engineer, Adi Pondit, he's not going to have to do a lot of work. He's in Colombia right now playing um, guitar with the band Jotunheim, which who knows, maybe we'll, we'll do a little plug uh, for them at some point, in addition to the plug that I just gave them. But he's going to be happy because there's not going to be a lot that needs to be done to this. I know you don't care about anything that I'm saying right now, but what you do care about is I have Roby Jenkins here. Uh, he is probably going to tell us a little bit about where he's from in terms of um, the other side of the old pond. Um, but you probably know his name if you have ever been on Osprey Publishing's website. Um, he has his own website, and I guess his sort of moniker is Precinct Omega. He wrote Horizon Wars and a game called Zero Dark. He also, which I just found out... Um, interestingly, has, has been and had been, I guess you could say, working on some games for kids, actually. Um, and it's called New Little Wars, which um, I've been told is going to be something that is going to be a project that he's going to work on, um, you know, in the future. So we have a ton of stuff to talk about. So Roby Jenkins, hello. Hello, Jared. Very nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Um, I'm glad that, that we were able to make this happen. Like I said, uh, you know, the the ghost of, of of Eric Farrington was somewhere here in the, uh, the old podcast studio trying to put that hex on us. But um, we love you, Eric. Don't worry. Don't worry. <laughs> so, so Roby, um, tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, how'd you get into gaming? Uh, well, my, my pathway into gaming is pretty, pretty traditional for people of my, my generation. I was... Uh, part of uh, the generation of the satanic panic around Dungeons and Dragons. Oh yeah, uh, my my older brother uh, was at boarding school at the time, and and this was just when Dungeons and Dragons was kicking off in, on, in this country, and uh, and he was playing at school, and uh, he and my parents went off to Wales for a holiday in what turned out to be the worst weather that the United Kingdom had ever seen at that time of year for a generation. And uh, and so with absolutely no chance of going outside to the beach or anything, my father handed my brother a 20-pound note and said, go on then, go, go on and buy some Dungeons & Dragons books. And he and I trudged out into the rain of uh, the rainy streets of Swansea Okay, <laughs> and, uh, and found a, a corner shop, gaming shop that had all the the D and D books on the shelves, and he bought it was it was I think what we call now second edition. Then it was Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. He yep, bought the I handbook and the Dungeon Master's Guide and a handful of dice, and uh, and there was enough change left over for me to get a couple of miniatures, and we took that back, and uh, and he then tried to lead my family, me and my family, through a Dungeons and Dragons adventure, and it. My recollection is that it was pretty good, but I, I can only have been about eight at the time. Um, and and in, if anything, it, the game at that time didn't really capture me, but what really caught my attention were the miniatures. Gotcha. I was really excited by the miniatures. And for a long time, I, I drifted from there very quickly into miniatures painting. Um, and, and I had a good group of friends who, who were into the same kind of stuff. And so we all sort of got into it at the same time. And, and for many years, I just painted the miniatures. Gotcha. And I was into science fiction. I was into fantasy. I was into 2000 AD and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it wasn't until I was ooh, 14 or 15 that I finally went, God, you know, I've, I've got enough of these that I should, should probably learn to play the game. Um, and at that point, I started playing Warhammer 40,000, Necromunda, Warhammer Fantasy Battle, right. um, all the ones that were big at the time. And uh, and I was absolutely dreadful. I mean, I was an <laughs> what do you mean dreadful as a player? terrible <laughs> player, absolutely <laughs> awful player. Um, I, I probably lost 80% of all the games I ever played. Right. Um, and I was always more of a hobby guy. Than a, than a game guy until Games Workshop released a game because I was very, very heavily into the Games Workshop side of the hobby at, at yeah. the time, which is ironic considering where I sit now. Um, but Games Workshop released a game called Inquisitor. 
yeah, uh, by Gav Thorpe, who who pleasantly is a now friend of mine, and uh, by this point, but when I, Inquisitor came out, I'd been through some stuff. Um, I, I'd been to university. Mm -hmm. uh, I had travelled the world a bit. Joined the army, got married, got deployed to the former Yugoslavia, and it was while I was in Bosnia that I had the Inquisitor rulebook and miniatures shipped to me. Um, and and I spent most of my tour there in Bosnia when I wasn't on duty trying to build and paint these these strange 54 mil. Uh, they yeah, were they were huge minis. Yeah. Uh, Double-sized minis, uh, white metal, uh, with a very small selection of paints, um, and get my head around this game. And... And it, it would be easy to say I've never read anything quite like it. And I've always been a huge fan of what Inquisitor did for the mm -hmm. hobby at the time. Um, if, if anything, it was a lot like Rogue Trader, the original Warhammer 40,000 rulebook. It, it had a lot. But when I'd first read that rulebook way back in the 80s, I really hadn't, understand, hadn't, hadn't understood how the game worked. I couldn't really get my head around that book. Now, by the time... We were here, we're talking about third, fourth edition 40K, and it had mm -hmm. moved on and become quite a structured game. Right. And then Inquisitor came along, and again, it had basically just threw all the structure out of the window. But by this point, I was old enough, mature enough, smart enough to understand what I was reading and to see what the game was doing, which was actually doing the thing that I had always been looking for, which was gaming the narrative, yeah. not gaming the game. Totally. I'm so on board with you. Yes. So like the role play games where I began, you come together as players and you have a narrative that you create between you and then you game it out. But unlike a role play game, you're doing it competitively. Right. So you've still got that, that uh, collaborative interaction and yet you're also competing against one another. And it was the realization that actually in, in that environment, it wasn't about the winning anymore. It was about the narrative that was created in the game. And for somebody, who, as I mentioned, was terrible at winning games, <laughs> right. a, a, a game in which it didn't matter if I lost was like manna from heaven for me. <laughs> gotcha. um, and when I got back from Bosnia, I threw myself into the UK scene for Inquisitor, which was all built around a, a, conclave, a, a, a forum known as the Conclave which has right. become a bit of, bit of wargaming history because there were people that I was associating then with uh, on the Conclave who are still close friends today. And we were all, I mean, I was among the oldest and I was in my uh, mid to late 20s. Um, and I was one of the oldest on the forum. And there are people that I sort of made contacts with now that, that were teenagers, were in their early 20s. And now we're like, 20 years later, we're still friends, we're still in touch. I've seen how they've gone on and they've developed careers and lives. And some of them have gone into game design. Some right. of them moved into art and illustration and miniatures. And, and it's been a fantastic set of contacts that I made just through that. But what that introduced me to was game design. Gotcha. And what was it, not to interrupt, but what was it about um, Inquisitor's game mechanics? Because that, I haven't heard that name in a really long time. I, I'm probably a little younger than you. Mm. I remember when that game came out and I remember how everybody was like, oh my God, these miniatures are gigantic, you know? Um, not, many, not many people that I knew at my store played, but when I would read things online, it's like one of those, it's almost like finding an Easter egg now. It's just really mm. one of the great games that they ever came out with. But what did you specifically like the most about it? <sighs> If anything, this was the weird thing. If anything, the mechanics weren't they weren't particularly innovative if you understood where they came from. And at the time, I didn't, but I've done much more research since then. Mm -hmm. um, it was a percentage-based system, so anybody who, who's played GURPS or, or anything like that will be familiar with, with percentage dice. Um, I think probably the most innovative part of it, although I think Gav would admit that even this wasn't completely his idea, 
was that you would declare a number of actions you were going to try and do up to the number of actions, up to the value of your speed. So let's say you had a speed of four. So you could declare up to four actions. You'd then roll four dice. And for every dice that got a four plus, you'd get to do one of those actions. Yeah, it's wild. I don't, there's and not many games like that. Exactly. And what that meant was that you could have these moments where you'd say, right, I'm going to, my character's going to leap over the barrel, fire two shots down the alleyway at the guy who's taking cover in the corner, and then dive into cover behind that box over there. And you'd roll your actions, and you'd only get two actions. So you'd leap over the barrel, you'd snipe off one shot, and then you'd be stuck, rabbit in the headlights, for your opponent to take a shot back. Right. Now, there were some issues with these rules. One of the early issues that arose was what happens if you roll no actions at all? It's really disappointing when you're like, ah, I got four ones. Right. And, <laughs> um, and there were other times when, you know, you might have a really high speed character and you'd roll six successful actions and you go, well, I, I only said three actions because I couldn't think of anything else I was going to do. And it puts you on the spot imaginatively, like some role play games do, which is great. But at the same time, uh, Fate is a really good example. Fate Core is a, is a game that does this thing. If, if you're really good at improvising on the spot, it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. If you're not, you're going to lose a lot. Right. Um, and because of that, I got involved in a project on the Conclave to basically rewrite the rules. Gotcha. Keep everything that was great about the rules, but try and actually make them mechanically more forgiving on people who didn't necessarily have the imagination to come up with stuff on the fly every time. Um, and in that process, I also ended up developing rules for NPCs. So characters on the tabletop that were not part of either player's warband. And eventually I ended up developing rules for that game that were solo rules. So you'd play a warband against a whole bunch of NPCs. Very cool. And it was that design process that would eventually lead to the game I wrote in 20, I've lost track, 2019, 2020, called Horizon Wars Zero Dark. Right. Um, but that was many years to come after, after this, this time. That, but that was what started me getting interested in the process of game design and how do you mechanically represent the activities of soldiers on a tabletop that are themselves just static figures, what is the actual process of, of turning that into an engaging imaginative experience that gives you that sense of immersion into what's happening without meaning that you're constantly flipping between tables and pages and rules and arguing and yeah, that you can actually get that intimate, immediate experience like one gets in a digital game, but with the creativity of an analog tabletop game. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's something that I've always thought about. It's almost like creating like a physical AI system, you know, on, on the tabletop, which um, can be really helpful for people that might not have a club or you know, might just want to set some figures up in the evening, even though, you know, their buddies might not be able to come over. So no, it's definitely really, really interesting. And um, just out of curiosity, do you still have those Inquisitor miniatures? Because that's a long time ago. Ooh. Do you have them well, is the question. <laughs> I, I sold most of them off. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the short version is, is I went through a time when after I left the armed forces, uh, we, we had a period when we had not very much in the way of money. Right, um, and I sold off a lot of my stuff at that point. I do have some of those figures somewhere in a box. I'm just looking around my office at the moment, trying to work out where they are. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> but no, and most of them sadly are are gone. Um, right, you can you can occasionally find them uh, every now every now and then. Uh, I will see one of my figures appear on eBay. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty funny. You know what's also interesting about your story? I mean, given that, you know, this is the first time we're chatting. I am I'm pretty much in the same camp as you when it comes to especially like the old games workshop games, you know? So, look, I was an average player at best, you know. Um you know what's interesting about that game is that, you know, if you've got very competent people playing, right? So, I'm talking like second edition, third edition, uh 40K, and then I guess it would have been 
fourth edition, fifth edition fantasy mm. battle, right? I don't know. I just always, as as diverse as the armies were, that was it was always a game where mm. if you're smart, you look at your list, you look at your opponent's list, and you almost kind of know exactly what's going to happen before the game is over. That's what defeated me about competitive play. And it's very funny, right? I didn't play Inquisitor. But what did to me, what it sounds like Inquisitor did for you, was playing Dark Heresy, which was the role-playing game that GW had come out with. And you reminded me of it talking about the percentages, right? Yes. What yes. we loved about that game, and frankly, even now, we do this on occasion with students, where the war game itself is always so much more fun if you've done a little bit of role-playing in advance, right? So you have your characters in the role-playing setting, and then all of a sudden the battle helps that narrative move along. So, yes. so, so I identify so much with what you're talking about. Now, I want to make a little bit of a, a, a cognitive leap here. So, so I get it. So you've got this background in, in sci-fi fantasy. You started, you know, with those D&D miniatures. Can you, can you walk me through how you get from rewriting those Inquisitor rules to then really publishing your own stuff? So Horizon Wars was your first game. Strictly not. Okay. Um, so my first, my first published game, I self-published a game that, that was called Scrapyard, um, which is technically still available, um, but I renamed it and rejigged it. It's now called Blood and the Black Flag, which is okay. still available. Um, if anybody's interested in looking this up while they're while they're listening to this, uh, if you go to wargamevault.com and search for Precinct Omega Publishing. You'll mm-hmm. find all of my all of my titles are there, um, and Blood and the Black Flag is there. It's a pseudo historical skirmish game, so gotcha. it's got fantasy elements, but it's really easy to pull the fantasy elements out, put them to one side, and play it as a historical game. Um, and it's got a pirate theme, hence Blood and the Black Flag. But actually, it's a very very generic uh, black powder early black powder historical skirmish game. Got it. No, that sounds cool. Um, and I, I self-published that in, oh, I left the army in 2007. Uh, so that must have been around 2009 I first published that, I think. Gotcha. Um, and I was basically, I, long story short, uh, I, I found myself between jobs after I left the army for some time. Um, mostly, mostly on a, on a voluntary basis, uh, to do with family stuff, but I was making money as a commission painter. Mm-hmm. Um, I say making money. I was just about scraping by as a commission painter. Let's be straight. My, my yeah. wife was very much the breadwinner in the family. That's a hard um, life too, by the way, and, uh, commission yeah. painting. Oh, it was brutal. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was. But my idea was to try and pivot that into developing my own miniatures line. And for that, I wanted a game. And I had some thoughts at the time about where miniatures design was going. Um, it turns out that my thoughts were correct, but I was about 15 years early. Um, I was too far <laughs> too far ahead of the market. Um, my miniature... I, it, Designing and making white metal miniatures is extraordinarily expensive, even when yeah. I called it every favor I could. Um, and and marketing and promoting as a single individual with not enough time and, and, and dealing with some stuff um, was simply not going to happen. And so that that basically consumed more money than I had, and I, I gave it up for a bad thing. By the time I gave that up, our, our financial position was not great. And so fundamentally, my miniatures design inspiration was the fact that I wanted to play wargaming games. I wanted to play miniatures war games, uh, but I couldn't afford Games Workshop. Right. I wanted to play the cheapest game I possibly could. My vision where I started out was I wanted a complete miniatures war game on the tabletop for less than £10. Okay. About twenty dollars at the time, um, and for that I found the cheapest miniatures I could, which was a set of six. I think it was six 
plastic mech miniatures from a company called EM4 Miniatures in the UK. Still going strong, fantastic people. Um, they still sell these miniatures, have done for years. They are the cheapest, simplest mech miniatures you'll ever see. They come in three different sizes. They're very basic, six mil scaled plastic minis, and you could get six, I think it was six of them for less than four pounds. I think I know what you're talking about. They look a little like Battletech minis. Or they do. Like, yeah, yeah. I, I'm pretty sure I've seen them before. I know what you they mean. They are classics. They are classics. I've got flipping dozens of them around my office right now. Right. Um, and my idea was one box of mechs for two players, handful of dice, army lists that would fit on the back of a, a business card or a file card, um, and no counters, the most basic terrain you could possibly need, tape measure, that's it. And I wanted it to be, as far as possible, it would allow people to play with things they already owned. So it was incredibly generic, very cut back. Um, and that was a game I called Mecha War. Mm -hmm. And I self-published that. And it was basically, I sold it for a pound a copy. You download a copy for a pound. And that did surprisingly well. And I thought, well, people like this. Let me do something more. So I produced a second game called Airframe that was built on the same mechanics with air combat. Because EM4 also does a box of 12 spaceships for the same amount of money. Plastic spaceships, 12 ships. Bam, good to like go. Six millimeter scale, basically. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're, they're spaceships, so their scale is very, you know, you can be whatever you fancy. Sure, but it, sure. They work well at six mil. So I thought, brilliant. We got the mechs, we got the spaceships. They were two separate games, but they were completely compatible. So you could play mechs on the tabletop and aircraft on the tabletop in the same game with the same army list, or you could play them as separate games if you wanted to. Having done that, I then thought, I need to finish the battle group. I need everything else. I need tanks. I need infantry. I need special forces. I need artillery. I want these things as well. So I wrote a third game called Battle Group. As I was preparing to publish Battle Group, I had a bit of a, a rush of blood to the brain. Mm -hmm. Basically, a few years previously, Phil Smith at Osprey, when he just set up Osprey Games, had put a general shout out to the community to say, have you got a game design? We'd be interested in publishing it. Let us know. And I'd contacted them about Scrapyard, now Blood and the Black Flag. And Phil had written back to say, I like what you've done, but it's not quite what we're looking for. I'm like, fine, no probs. And I was just getting ready to publish Battle Group when I thought, oh, well, I wonder if Phil would be interested. So I wrote him an email to say, I've got this game. I was thinking of crushing all three games together into one big game. Would you be interested? And he came back practically instantly to say, yes, definitely would be interested in having a look. I was like, well, I'd better get this sorted out then. Wow. Go and on, I sure. sat down for three or four weeks, smashing the three games into one game, into one manuscript, threw it together, chucked it across to Phil and went, there you go. What do you think? And again, very quickly, he came back and went, yeah, we like this. We want to publish it. Let's get it finished uh, and let's talk. Um, and, and that role, that was uh, late 2014. Yeah. Um, and in April 2016, uh, Horizon Wars was published. Awesome. And what My was the general feedback? Game. What was the general feedback? Uh well, okay, when it comes to, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, I suspect, or, or maybe on a, another time if, if, if it allows. Um, the best feedback for a game that you are publishing is sales. Mm -hmm. We all, this is the weird thing, as game designers, what we really want is people to play our games. Right. But every time you play a game, I make nothing. I only make money when you buy the game. Yeah. So you can buy a game and play it a billion times. I get the same amount of money whether you buy the game and never look at it again. So in terms of play, it did pretty well. In terms of sales, it did not. Gotcha. Um, it, it, uh, yeah, I mean, I, the, the first sort of six months or so, sales were, were okay. 
you know, first couple of months, fantastic, then rapidly diminished. Um, by the end of the first 12 months, every single one of my uh, royalties checks were coming back as a zero. Not mm-hmm. because I wasn't making sales, but because what they do is they take your sales and then they deduct all of the returns. Because they send out a whole bunch to bookshops on a sale or return basis, and you right. get credit for those because they've been sold right. to the bookshop. But when the bookshop sells, sends them back to the publisher, they get credited, and it comes out of the author's pocket. Uh, right. So, and it was just went to zero. Uh, you know, twelve months after launch, I was making not a penny off the book. So at that point, I went back to Osprey. I had a really good relationship with Phil. Um, still a lot of time for Osprey and what they do. Um, but I went back and I said, look, you guys have moved on to other things. I can see that. You know, there are new games coming out that you're much more interested in, you're focused on, you're not that fussed about Horizon Wars. I could put a lot more time into developing Horizon Wars as a property with my own publishing company. Would you be up for ending our, our agreement early and then I can take the property, the, the publishing rights back and I can do something new with it myself. Phil went, yep, absolutely no problem with that. We'll sort it out. And and Osprey and I went our separate ways very amicably, and I went off and set up Precinct Omega Publishing. Got it. Okay, and I had read about that um, before we did this podcast because there's a little bit more to that story, right? Meaning, well, you you jump in. Um, Was there something else about another publishing company that was kind of involved and basically, not not to use the word hamstrung, but... Was there some kind of issue with you moving forward in terms of putting out more product? Or was it just that you needed to get out from under Osprey first? It was mostly just that because I, okay. I I was able to publish. So I, I wrote a supplement called Over the Horizon, which was yep. additional material for Horizon Wars. And, and Osprey were completely happy for me to independently publish that. That was that there was never any concern over that. But Basically, so the the book had gone out, and as I think with so many novice designers, I had this idea that my book was my game was going to be pub perfect straight out of the gate. Mm-hmm. I I play tested it up, down, backwards, and forwards. There was nothing wrong with the game. Nobody could find a per- single fault. It was perfect. Very quickly after release, I realized that it was not. Not only had we made some errors, as you always do, we fixed the erratas in the FAQ, that was fine. But also, there was a lot of feedback from players about stuff that basically I heard them and I was like, yeah, you know, it could be better. There is more I could do. I could make it more interesting. And there'd also be some, been some features of, of how the book was laid out and how it was presented and, and how Osprey still do do book layout that I I just wasn't that pleased with. Yeah, uh, you're not the issue, first person to say that, by the way. But frankly, the main issue was that I was getting 15% of the net. Yeah. Um, and if I self-published, I could get 70% of the gross. So... <laughs> 15% is not a lot. <laughs> and, and, if, and if sales fundamentally are zero, I mean, 15%, to be fair, it's a pretty good royalty for an author. Yeah, uh, 15% is is good as long as your sales are, are strong. Yeah. But if your sales diminish very rapidly, what's the point? I yeah. could do more with it independently. Yeah. And, and has that, that worked better good. for you? Has that worked oh, better yeah. for you? Oh, yeah. Vastly. Vastly better for me. Um, so off my... I mean, it's fundamentally, you know, because there's no sale or return involvement here, Wargame Vault does everything on a print-on-demand basis. Mm-hmm. You either buy it digitally or you buy it print-on-demand. It's printed usually in your country. Uh, they got printers all over the world, so there's no big shipping or, or costs associated. Um, and, and the profit comes directly to my company. Yeah. Which is perfect. It just doesn't make a lot of money. You know, I'm, I'm, I write miniatures war games. It's a niche market. I yeah. have a day job. This should be said. <laughs> no, no, I absolutely. Am, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I'm a, an HR consultant. This is my my day job. Uh, but uh, but painting basically my hobby comfortably pays for itself. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think I think uh, unless you're talking about the really 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 big companies, um, I think for a lot of authors and designers, and even in some cases, you know, people who own businesses where they 
you know, kind of produce everything, um, meaning everything in one go. I, I think for a lot of people, you kind of have to have another job, which is, you know, oh, yeah. again. But you know what, though? I, I Again, I completely relate to what you're talking about. I mean, I have a lot of friends and I was in bands growing up and I have a lot of friends that are in that world. And it's tough, you know, get, you, you, know you get a record company to put out your record and it seems wonderful until you realize that, you know, if you make it, you know, they're going to they're going to profit a lot more and they claim that they're going to be able to help you and promote you and do all of this. But ultimately, it's your ideas that they're going to be sort of profiting from. So, so many bands now are just, they'd rather just be independent. And it's like, I'll roll the dice and I'll put the work in. And just like you're saying, you know, get get more of the profits, you know. So, um, again, jump in if I'm incorrect here, because I know we were talking a little a, a little while ago. So, the Horizon Wars trilogy, you're kind of in the pro- process of finishing that trilogy of books, right? Well, technically, you could say that it's finished because the first one was Horizon Wars. Okay. Which Osprey published. Then I self-published Horizon Wars Zero Dark, which was a 28mm skirmish game. And then I self-published Horizon Wars Infinite Dark, which is a spaceship combat game. Got it. And, and it's called, they're all called Horizon Wars because it's the Horizon Wars intellectual property. They're all set in the same universe, in the same timeline. Got it. Um, but it's designed, all the games are designed to be very generic so that you can play them with whatever miniatures you've got handy. I always say, I, I want my games to be an excuse to buy the miniatures you always wanted to buy but never had a good reason for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. That makes sense. But I'm now getting to the point where I'm about to release, and literally on a, on a separate screen on my monitor as we chat, is is the manuscript that I'm desperately trying to finish. Um I'm about to release the third volume, which will be Horizon Wars Midnight Dark. And mm-hmm. that is a return to the original Horizon Wars. Cool. So it's a six mil sci-fi battle game with mechs and aircraft and tanks and soldiers and special forces. But it it is the game that I would have written had I had all the knowledge that I have now. So gotcha. it's it's a slightly more sophisticated game. It's a more complex game it's got more nuance around command and morale which the earlier game did not um it still tries to stay true to its origins all of my games have always tried to to keep themselves as cheap as humanly possible um but it's it's introduced elements that were in the subsequent games to make it more of a narrative just like we were talking about where i began Mm -hmm. with inquisitor it was about trying to make sure that the game is an opportunity to participate in a narrative. Gotcha. And what does gameplay look like? I mean, is this a game that, you know, is done in an hour or two hours? Or what would you say? Uh, I would say typically it's one to two hours is the kind of play length of the games that I write. Um, obviously, it will vary depending on the size of your forces and how much time you want to spend thinking about your moves at any given time. Um, but typically, that's what I find it tends to play out at, is an hour to two hours. Um, you're talking about what I would describe as company plus size battle groups. Mm-hmm. So if you're thinking about soldiers, we're talking about nine to 12 groups of soldiers. If you're thinking about tanks, we're talking about six to 18 tanks. But obviously, it mixes and matches, and you can take all kinds of different elements in your battle group. Was your time in the service, um, did that have an impact on your thinking behind the scale of your game? Well, it it did and it didn't. And I don't want to, to overblow my military experience. I, I was uh, a commissioned officer in the British Army. Okay. Um, I rose to the heady ranks of captain, uh, which uh, military people will know is is really still quite junior as far as officers go. Um, and I was also what's called a medical support officer. So I was in the Royal Army Medical Corps. And the last thing I should say is other than my time in Bosnia, despite serving in the medical corps at a time of the corps' highest operational tempo since the Second World War, I didn't go anywhere interesting. I didn't okay, go gotcha. to Iraq, I didn't go to Afghanistan, I didn't go to Sierra Leone. And any of these things that were going on while I was there for whatever reason, either I was in a training establishment, which is ring-fenced, or I was in a staff officer job, which isn't technically ring-fenced, but it's hard to get out of, or I was in another role where it, it they just decided they didn't want to send me. Um, 
and, and then for, for very, very sensible reasons, the army and I took a good, long, hard look at each other and decided that, <laughs> that it was not going to work out. Not for you, per se. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Gotcha. It, it was a very amicable split, but a split it certainly was. So I don't want to emphasize too much the value, but nevertheless, you know, I was at the Royal Military Academy. I did study military tactics uh, and yeah. less my experience than than working alongside colleagues who were far more experienced and more knowledgeable sharing their experience with me is is what i'm really trying to reflect whilst at the same time recognizing that it's supposed to be a game and it's supposed to be fun and it's fundamentally giant robots firing lasers at each other <laughs> yeah, so, right. you know, there's there's only so serious you can really take it Right. I describe all of my games as hard-ish sci-fi. Got it. Did you play Epic 40K growing up? Oh, well, funnily enough, actually, there was, there was a phase in between uh, not really understanding Rogue Trader and starting playing at around 3rd edition, 2nd edition, 3rd edition 40K when I played a game called Space Marine. Yep. And Space Marine was the original Epic 40K after Adeptus Titanicus. Uh, and I played a lot of Space Marine. And actually, it was one of the few times in my gaming career when I was good at a game. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, no, I, I played a lot of the original Space Marine, and, and there were some features of that game that, that have stayed with me. Yeah, I've always said that... I mean, look, Games Workshop always comes up on this podcast, probably because I have this sort of weird love-hate relationship with that company. And we all, hate, yeah. Right, we all do, right? They're the gorilla in the room. Totally, completely. Um, but that said, I love the world. And, and we were just talking about narratives. I mean, that word has come up so many times. I love the stories. Um, but all of that said, I've always found that Epic 40K is a much better... Um, almost a much better visual to go with those stories than the regular game. And obviously, even now, it's like, you know, you're playing on that little tiny board. The miniatures are so gigantic. You know, it just doesn't... I just don't get the feel for, you know, these massive, massive, massive wars, whereas for Epic, um, or even Space Marine or Adeptus Decanicus or whatever... It's just a much better feel to me. I play that game all the time. So, and a lot of people have said very similar stuff, and it's, I, I think it's really true. And actually, funnily enough, although I played mostly Space Marine, um, Epic 40K, the original Epic 40K that became Epic Armageddon, mm. um, and is now still alive under the guise of NetEpic, yep, yep. Um, is, is probably one of the best designed games ever to emerge from Games Workshop. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, um, I love it. Features, features, I mean, the, everybody talks about this, so it's just a basic thing, and it's hardly original to say so, but the blast marker mechanic in that, the pinning mechanic with the, the markers on the units, was both visually very immersive and at the same time mechanically extremely effective. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's that um, economy of design that I have tried really hard to take into my my games. I, I like to say I make every part of the game work hard. You know, yeah, there is no sense. there is no element of the game that you will not use on a regular basis. Yeah. Um and yeah, that I mean Games Workshop does not design good games. Um, yeah. Games Workshop designs great marketing tools. Oh, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah. but but epic was certainly a great game yeah and and again like i said um i i completely agree with you um i always found and i'm sure my listeners are so tired of hearing this but i always like their small games i love their small games like whether you're talking about necromunda or blood bowl um th those games always felt to me like there was a little bit more time put into how they were going to work whereas again you know um even at my happiest moments playing, you know, either Warhammer Fantasy or, you know, Warhammer 40K, just the kinds of egregious things that would make it into those rule books. And then in the way that when the codex would come out, I mean, there was nothing worse than your book coming out and you've invested $1,000 or $1,500 and you're a kid, right? You're, and by the way, for my audience, Roby is laughing hysterically because he knows exactly what I'm talking about. And then that book comes out. You could literally be Einstein. Literally be Einstein. Um, 
and you could have a moron on the other side. But if they had a better codex than you, there's really not a whole lot that could be done. And there, and again, like that's not conjecture. You look at um, the armies that win these tournaments, and it's like here are ten places. Like eight of the same damn army are the ones that win. So it's like, but I don't think Games Workshop well, cares, though, right? I mean, they just want to make kind money. Of, no, no, no. Games Workshop has has never really cared about the competitive scene because, yeah. as I say, they're not interested in writing a good game. They're writing a marketing tool. They're writing, and, and it's easy to say that and sound like it's it's critical of Games Workshop, but fundamentally it isn't. They're a right. miniatures company. They have always been a miniatures company. And the game, yeah. from the very start, from the very first release of, of the first Warhammer game, it has always been a tool to encourage their customers to buy more miniatures. Yeah. And it works really well. Yeah, and it I agree. And it's to hold that against them. But I, this is why conversations like ours are so important, because for young people coming into the hobby, you know, who are excited about Space Marines and Eldar and Orcs and Necrons, that's brilliant. And, and if all you want is an excuse to put the stuff you've put hours into painting on the tabletop and roll some dice and have some fun, fantastic. But if you're interested in a good gaming experience there are better games to play. Even, not mine. If you're into Space Marines and Orcs and Necrons, don't play my games. <laughs> they generally, they don't fit. There are some right. They don't. But, but things like One Page Rules, Grim Dark Future, stuff like Planet 28, stuff like Space Weirdos, Space Station Zero, they're brilliant. All of them are fantastic. If, if you want to take the miniatures you already own and plonk them into somebody else's game... A game written by somebody who only makes money if you buy their game is going to be better than a game written by somebody who just wants to sell miniatures. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, you know. And and again, like, you know, uh, you almost can't fault them. What, what do you expect? You expect um, a company to not want to make money? I mean, that's ridiculous as well, so... They are really good at what they do, you know. And oh, look, I'm not going to lie, though. Um, I will be the first person online to watch Henry Cable play a Space Marine, you know, because that's the rumor. Um, you know, oh, well, that, I thought, I thought my, the rumor I heard was that he was going to play Eisenhorn. Well, I also heard that rumor, and I've been thinking about that name. I was waiting for that name to come up because I love those books, you know. So when you were talking about Inquisitor earlier, correct me if I'm wrong, was Eisenhorn one of the miniatures or... Yeah. It yeah, was, it was one of, yeah, one of the release miniatures. Yeah, yeah, I love those books. You know, I actually, so. I, I actually briefly, very briefly, wrote for the Black Library. I wrote one mm. short story. Oh, that's cool. Black Library, and I I pitched several novels to Nick Kime, mm -hmm. uh, and and all of them got rejected. Um, and and at the time, I was quite bitter about that. But I look back, and uh, Nick made a good decision because mm -hmm. not only were my pitches not great. But even if he'd liked one of my pitches, I guarantee I would not have delivered the novel. Mm. Just because um, it, the, of the amount of time that it would take to put together? or Well, no, because, because I didn't realize until much more recently that I have ADHD. Right. Uh, which means that writing a novel is not something I'm physically capable of doing. Yeah, it's tough. No, I, believe me, I'm a school teacher, so um, I've worked with students that have been that have had that diagnosis before, and yeah, it's it's very hard to look at a student and have to say, "Look, um, this is what you've been dealt. You are going to have to work harder than somebody else," and then it's my job to give them the strategies that they can kind of implement to make that a little bit easier. So I uh, believe me again, like um, I feel like we're kindred spirits because these topics keep coming up that, 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 but, that seem to connect us. You know, I get it. This is why it's so nice to have found this niche as a writer. Right. You know, because writing a game is, is different. It, the game design itself happens in that kind of white hot rush that ADHD brains are very good at. Yes. I, I literally, the, the mechanics for the original Horizon Wars game, which are still the mechanics that my games are based on now, I literally came up with in 20 minutes sitting up in bed with a notebook and a pencil. Right. And I went, this is it. This yeah. is how it's going to work. <laughs> and stuff has, has built on it from there, but the fundamental mechanics were came, came up in that time. And all I've been doing is reiterating them over different yeah. games in different ways. But as I write sci-fi and fantasy games, what that also means to is I get to indulge 
my my fiction brain that wants to write fiction by fleshing out the intellectual property, the world around Horizon Wars in those, you know, you see, if you pick up a sci-fi rule book, you'll see those sidebars of fiction or those sections of, of, you know, future history to read. They're much shorter, they're snappier, but they're there to sort of immerse you into the world and give you an idea of who these people are. And I can write those. Yeah. That's easy. You know, five, six hundred words of sci-fi. Yeah, I can do that in two minutes. Right. But but 300,000 word right. novel. Like the chunk. longer pieces are, are more difficult. Again, like, you know, for me, I never, I don't know. I, I mean, look, any gamer, I would argue, any gamer, particularly with miniatures, we've all tinkered with rules, right? I mean, I think that's part of part of the deal of, of being in this hobby. I've never had a ton of interest in writing my own games. But again, similar to you, Whereas for different reasons, I would probably never write a fantasy novel or a sci-fi novel, but I probably have the content for it by just GMing games. So for me, it's like, instead of writing, I create the world that players play in. So I kind of get that, you know, sort of energy. You know what I mean? It's almost like doing one medium versus doing the other, you know, so I get it. But it is so, one that really, really yeah. suits the ADHD brain. And it, it is curious because when I first started writing rules, I had some close friends in, in my gaming circle that had dyslexia. Mm-hmm. And I talked to them about how do they read a rule book? You know, when they struggle with, with textbooks and novels and stuff. How, and they were actually really helpful because they said, well, actually, I find it quite easy to read a rule book because I only read the bits that I need. Sure. And the way that rule books are broken down in different columns with box outs and pictures and illustrations and uh, photographs of miniatures, it, it means that the mind is occupied by only small parts of what you're looking at at any given time, and it's much easier to consume. And I've used that ever since to try and structure yeah. rule books in a way that is very friendly to, to neurodiverse yeah. readers. It reminds me again of you know teaching kids how to annotate in school, you know, yeah. like where you teach kids how to sort of parcel out paragraphs, like don't get overwhelmed by the whole page, but, you know, literally, you know, get a highlighter, box out, you know, what you're reading. So it's almost like taking small bites in- instead of taking the really, really big monstrous one, you know? Um, so let me ask something, just to transition for one moment. So I really feel like our listeners now have a really good sense of you and a really good sense of, you know, your sci-fi project. I, I really hope that people who listen will check out, you know, your website, which by the way, we can kind of get to towards the end, you know, because people will look you up after listening to this. So hopefully um, we'll get, we'll get some eyes on your work, but you said an intriguing thing before we came on here. I guess the idea of kids getting into the hobby and kids doing more gaming, that's been something that's been on your mind for a while. And you had mentioned that you were either in the process of or had been working on something called New Little Wars, which I know is kind of like a nod to the nod to the past a little bit. Could you talk a little bit about what that project is all about? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm sure a lot of your, your listeners are going to be aware that modern miniatures wargaming, hobby wargaming as we play it, was started by H.G. Wells, the sci-fi author who wrote a book called Little Wars that was all about playing battles with, with tin soldiers on the floor of his, his children's playroom with his friends and that the the book is worth reading as a historical curiosity if nothing else it's not a sophisticated piece of war games design but i was inspired quite a long time ago um with the idea that game design the experience of game design could be a useful educational tool but also a fun activity in itself and so I wrote a set of rules which I called New Little Wars as a nod to Wells, although it'll probably end up being retitled. Mm-hmm. And the idea was that it is it is the most stripped down basic set of war game rules you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it uses a single dice, handful of miniatures, measuring sticks, and it's got the most simple rules to it that you can you can think of but the idea was that it would provide a starting place uh, for children young children to play games with with whatever they've got with with 
Lego men, with plastic army soldiers, with their teddy bears if they wanted to. Um, with, you know, your My Little Pony figures sure, or, or, sure. or G.I. Joe, whatever you've got, you can play play games with, with these rules. And then the more a child is engaged, it then provides them with a set of tools with which they can then make the game more complex in a way that suits their needs. So you start off with a single measuring stick and everything moves the length of the measuring stick. But then you can introduce either shorter sticks or sticks that are marked in different ways so they can move different distances on the stick. You start with rolling one dice and it's always a four plus. And you can say, well, what, how will it be different if you make it a three plus or a five plus or a two plus? What, what would it be like if you added more dice? What different, and it, the idea is that it's not a game in itself so much as it is a really, really basic game plus a load of additional tools that parents or teachers can use to help children to add more to the game as it as they evolve in what they want to do with the game so they get and it's that idea of well i can add this thing to the game so that i get this advantage but of course if i add it to my game i'm also adding it to my opponent's game sure. so they're getting the same thing um and and then sort of leading towards the idea of building armies with themes right you know, factions as we would know them you know, and then you can have different rules for each side, and what would that look like? So it's, it, and I, I wrote most of the game like eight years ago. It must be eight years ago because there's a video. If you go onto my YouTube channel, mm -hmm. find way, way, way deep back in the deep history of my YouTube channel, which is just called Precinct Omega. So it's yeah, you will find a video of me playing it with my younger son who was then i think eight or nine years old he's now 17 so oh, wow. <laughs> you know, it was that long ago um but we're sat in in this room that you can see me sat, sat in today um playing at a table and, and and you know he's not a gamer neither of well my older son is into dnd but my younger son's totally not a gamer um but he was very engaged with the experience and, and has since said oh i'd love to play that again you know, yeah. even eight years later, he's like, oh, you know, we should play that game again. And because I've been really focused on my commercial work, you know, I wanted to get through to the third volume of the Horizon Wars trilogy, get it out there, get it finished. And then my plan is that I will essentially restart the trilogy in a couple of years and restart each game from scratch, mm -hmm. making it better, building it up, adding more. But I want to take a few years to let the whole trilogy sort of mature in the marketplace. Sure. So what am I going to do then? Well, what I want to do is go back to New Little Wars, revisit it, and make it a complete tool. You know, so everything you could need to start designing your own game with young people, with children, with with wargaming clubs, to show people really that you don't have to accept what the Lenten Gorilla wants to give you when it comes to game right. design. Yeah, that's that's fun. And for students, it, it fires them off, you know, meaning their brains. Um, having to design rules and having to justify those rules and explain why those rules are being made. It's a brilliant idea. How are you not a school teacher? Because, I mean, that is like a perfect lesson. <laughs> and I was... I was rejected. I have tried. Oh no! Don't say that. <laughs> I, I mentioned the ADHD, but yeah, yeah. I didn't do terribly well in my original degree. Which, which right. Is, anyway, uh, as I say, I I am now going to have to say farewell. I have to. Run. No, absolutely. Because it's your birthday, right? My mother's birthday. Your mother's birthday. Gotcha. Well, you yeah, cannot. Because... You certainly, Roby, cannot be late for that. <laughs> well, look, Roby, I have to say it's been absolute pleasure talking to you, and I like the fact that we touched on so many other. Um, elements, frankly, of your life. I mean, it was really uh, uh, a very engaging talk, so I really appreciate that. And before you sign off, where, if somebody wants to find your materials, if somebody wants to know a little bit more about Horizon Wars, what would be the best um, way for somebody to go about that? Hi, Jared. Before the uh, technology gods and the curse of Eric uh, cut me off. I was just going to tell you and obviously your listeners where they can find out more about Precinct Omega. The number one place to go for anything about Precinct Omega's games is Wargame Vault, which is a fantastic repository for all kinds of independent uh, products, retailers, publishers, uh, 3D miniatures designers. 
Um, and you can find me there if you just search for Precinct Omega Publishing. Uh, or you can search for Horizon Wars and find any of the Horizon Wars products that are there. Horizon Wars Zero Dark, which is the skirmish game. Horizon Wars Infinite Dark, which is the spaceship game. Uh, and my pirate-themed semi-fantasy pseudo-historical uh, skirmish game, uh, Blood and a Black Flag. But if you want to know more about what Precinct Omega is doing generally, you can also go to precinctomega.co.uk or indeed precinctomega.com and see my blog uh, and see updates on what Precinct Omega is working on as well as some products that I sell. I do sell some miniatures. Um, I, I'm not brilliant at selling miniatures though. So, you know, uh, so your mileage may vary. Um, and you can follow Precinct Omega on Instagram. You can follow Horizon Wars on Facebook. Uh, I do have an X account, but I am never there on principle. Um, and I am regular on Reddit, uh, particularly Wargaming subreddits on Reddit. You will find me there on the regular with username Precinct Omega. It was really good to talk to you. I'm sorry we got cut off. Um, Look forward to speaking to you again in the future because I feel like we really only scratched the surface of stuff we could talk about in terms of uh, developing miniatures war games as educational tools for children. Really nice to meet you. Uh, look forward to speaking to you again in the future and thank you ever so much. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to today's 20-sided gamified podcast. I hope you got as much out of the conversation as I did. If you're interested in learning more about the organizations I work with, please visit www.nextgengaming.org and www.nasaga.org. My Instagram handle is hmgs underscore nextgen underscore inc. Until next time, be well, get some gaming in, and roll some 20s. Thank you so much.